You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If we turn your Bible to John 15, we'll be in verses 18, and our goal is to get through chapter 16, verse 4. There's an unfortunate chapter division there in my estimation. Very grateful for, for Regen and our wonderful, um, joyful noise this morning for leading us in worship. I maintain that the songs we sing, the truths that we sing, are the untruths in certain contexts, have a transforming effect. It's important what we sing. And I'm grateful for the songs that our young people are singing. And I believe God's going to use that uh, to, to conform them to Christ and to prepare them uh, for the Christian life. Um, before we get into our text, I, I, I do want to pray that the Lord would give us uh, hearts that are ripe for the word this morning. But I also want to pray for what's going on in the Middle East. And I think Hal may do that a little bit at the end as well. But um, let's pray. We have a, a couple over there uh, who are serving. And let's pray for protection for all the missionaries and pastors and, and Christians and, and, and all the image bearers there that are uh, under the threat of terroristic violence. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace to us this morning. And we thank you. Uh, that you have purchased for us our salvation, but the gift of fellowship and community and the church. And we are so grateful this morning for that gift. And Lord, as the church this morning, before we get into our passage, I want to pray for what is going on there. Lord, we now know that Hamas terrorists uh, went from house to house and Lord, maiming and, and murdering and mutilating image bearers. And we recognize, Lord, that uh, as of now, the highest civilian casualty rate in the history of contemporary modern Israel has taken place um, in this one single attack akin to 9-11 by complete surprise. And they are reeling there, Lord. They are suffering they are grieving loss. Lord, I want to pray for the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, that you would give him the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Uh, we do pray for our own that are there in Israel. We pray for peace and, and protection. Uh, we pray, Lord, for the pre prince of peace to come to bear, not just in Israel, but the Middle East. And Lord, that eyes would be opened to their need for the Savior of the world. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring this evil under the dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the perpetrators would be brought to justice. And even as we pray for justice for them, we pray that you would open in their hearts to Christ crucified and raised from the grave. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would use this tragedy to prepare hearts and prepare the missionaries to engage them with the gospel. 
We pray that the church there would be strengthened. We pray for open doors. We pray, Lord, hallowed be your name. And we pray now as we come to this passage that John's purpose for writing it is fulfilled today through the preaching of the word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we sang a Reformation hymn this morning, Mighty Fortress is Our God. That's appropriate from October uh, because we know that October is the month where we, we celebrate the Reformation and we remember the cost, the significant cost that were paid by the Reformers, many of them, uh, to ensure that the gospel of Jesus Christ was preserved. And so to ensure that Jesus is rightly worshiped in a biblical way. And these reformers were, were hated and, and they were persecuted, many of them, unto death. But they embraced their calling because they recognized that Jesus was their treasure in the field. And for joy, they sold all that they had and they purchased that field. And so as the Reformation was taking place in places like Germany and Wittenberg and Switzerland and places like Zurich, seeds for that Reformation were also being planted in England. You had scholars from, from Cambridge and Oxford who were, who were beginning to read the works of Luther. In fact, Erasmus's uh, Greek New Testament was now in England, and, and those who could read the Greek were reading his Greek New Testament and the companion, the Latin translation of this New Testament. But if there was going to be a Reformation in England... The word of God had to be translated into English. Here's the problem. That was illegal. Church of England was under the dominion of Rome. And the Pope said, Rome said that if you put the Bible in the common man's hands, you'll have a thousand popes. And so they forbid the translation of the Bible into English. And so if it was going to be translated into English so that the common person could read the Bible, you needed someone who had the courage to do it. And you needed someone who had the genius to do it. And in that dark hour, God raised up a man named William Tyndale. A genius. A man who was fluent in eight languages, including Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. And so Tyndale was the man. But if he was going to do this, it was going to cost him everything. And it literally did. At age 30, he committed to translate the Greek and the Hebrew into the English language, but he couldn't do it on English soil because it would have been in opposition to the crown and to the church. And so at the age of 30, he was exiled out of England. And for the next 12 years of his life, the last 12 years of his life, he lived as a fugitive and as an outlaw while translating the Bible into English. Um, by the time he was done and he had completed the New Testament and most of the Old Testament, but by the time he was done, 
his translation would form the basis of the King James Version in 1611. In fact, 84% of the King James Version is a direct uh, translation straight from Tyndale's own translation. And all subsequent, or most subsequent English translations after that, word for word copy of Tyndale. Well, this past Friday, October the 6th, was the 487th anniversary of Tyndale's martyrdom. He died at the age of 42 because of his faith in Jesus Christ and because he was translating that Bible into English for us. In fact, he died in a very similar way to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was betrayed like Judas betrayed Jesus. There was a man named Harry Phillips, and Harry needed money. And so he befriended Tyndale, and he built this relationship with Tyndale. And Tyndale loved Harry Phillips, and, and Tyndale began to trust Harry Phillips. And one night in, in 1535, they went to dinner, and they had this wonderful conversation. And after dinner, they're making their way through an alley. And Phillips places Tyndale in front of him. It's a very narrow alley. And so Tyndale is walking in front of Phillips, and they come to a doorway, and there were soldiers on both sides. And Harry Phillips po points at Tyndale and says, there's your man. They arrested him. And for a year and a half, he lived in a dungeon with unspeakable misery. As a side, Tyndale went through that misery with such joy and faith that he won his jailer to Christ and his jailer's family to Christ. But on October the 6th, 1536, Tyndale was publicly strangled and burned to death at the stake. His last words, Lord, opened the king's eyes. And it set a fire in England. And he was the forebearer of the English Reformation. Now, many American Christians, and we are so naive, we tend to think these kind of things don't go on anymore. But as our friend Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. Just this, think of this, last year alone, 2022, more than 5,600 Christians worldwide were killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. More than 2,100 churches worldwide were attacked or closed because of persecution. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. And almost 15,000 Christians became refugees, 2022 alone. Overall, there are estimated 360 million followers of Christ who live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. What do I mean by that? Where it's illegal to be a Christian. One in seven 
worldwide. And though for the last 247 years of the American experiment, we haven't seen that here in the United States, at least when it's happened, it's been an aberration. Though we haven't seen it, many believe it's coming to a theater near you. John Dickerson, in his book, The Great Evangelical Recession, says this. In the coming decades, United States evangelicals will be tested as never before by the ripping and the tearing of external cultural change. And I believe that to be the case. But before Dickerson, there was Jesus who warned of this. We see this warning in our passage today. Now, in chapter 15, we have seen Jesus call to abide in the vine. It begins there. If you're going to persevere, if you're not going to uh, compromise your faith when it comes, it begins with abiding in the vine. And then he turns his attention to the disciples loving one another. Now, why do you think he would call disciples to love one another? Because we're going to need each other when it happens. One of the problems in the American church is that it's not costly to be a Christian. And so uh, we were created to be a battleship, not a cruise liner. We don't function well as cruise liners. And so what we do is we turn in on ourselves. And that's why you have all the bickering in churches. But when the fire falls, we're going to need each other. And so Jesus says, you better love one another because you're going to need each other. And then he turns to the point he's making that there is going to be suffering if you are truly a follower of me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the section we're in today can be broken down into two points. The first point is this the world's hatred of Christians. And the second point, the Holy Spirit's help for Christians. We could say it this way, the world's hatred and persecution of Christians and the Holy Spirit's help and his provision for Christians when these things happen. Well, that brings us to the first part of this passage. Those who follow Jesus. And we're not talking here about some, some kind of uh, superficial nominal faith where you just choose Jesus for fire insurance. That's not real. Those who follow Jesus will be hated and persecuted. Jesus says that. Look with me in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so the previous text summed up in verse 17, centered on Jesus' call to love one another. We saw in John 13, 37, this is the new commandment. And he said, this is the way the world will know that you're my disciple, that you have love for one another. And the love we've been talking about is what we call cruciform love. Cruciform love is, is the unswerving commitment to the redemptive good of others 
at the expense of self. That's cruciform love. That's how the world's going to know that you're a true believer. But a second reason he's called them to love each other is because they will need each other when the fire falls. Now, when Jesus says, if, he's not saying it's possible. It's more like he is saying, if, and trust me, this will happen. Now, he does not mean that every unbeliever will hate Christians. Uh, there's plenty of examples in history and even in Scripture where unbelievers see that Christians are beneficial. And that's not what he's saying here. But he is saying that the world system, that is the system opposed to God in Jesus Christ, and those who embrace that world system will hate you, the, will hate Christians. And up to this point, we haven't seen this world system directed at the disciples. It's coming. Up to this point, we've seen it directed at Jesus. Throughout the gospel of John, we have seen the world system seeking to kill Jesus, primarily expressed through the religious leaders. In fact, today, we heard missionaries say, this, uh, two weeks ago, that much of the persecution in the world is religious systems, uh, religious leaders behind the persecution. And so that's not new, though. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. But that didn't begin in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It actually began all the way back in Genesis 3, where Moses writes, of this promise that the seed of the woman, yes, would crush the seed of the serpent. We know the seed of the woman would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would crush the serpent and all those who were under his rule. And yet, the seed of the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that really is the theme of the Bible. And yet, we also know this will come to a consummate head when Christ returns and all evil is vanquished and Christ is deemed Lord indeed of a new heavens and a new earth. But the plan was already in place. Just hours away, Jesus was about to go to the cross and at the cross and through his resurrection, he was going to crush the serpent's head. But Jesus is warning, you're gonna live in that interim between the already and the not yet. And those who publicly identify with him, that is, those who boldly identify with him, will inevitably be caught up in the crossfire and the conflict. Well, look with me in verse 19. Now, this is a very important verse in this passage. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Be careful if you're the most popular person with a worldly group. That's what he's saying. But because you are not of the world, speaking here of disciples, Christians, but I chose you out of the world. We saw that in John 15, verse 16. Therefore, the world hates you. 
I do not like to be hated. I don't like to be slandered. I don't like to be mistreated. And I know you don't either. You would almost have to be insane to want that. The temptation because of that is to withdraw from contact with the world into a a Christian ghetto. That really is the temptation. But this can't be. It can't be. Because Jesus is sending us into the world. We saw this in the last text, verse 16, that you should go and bear fruit. That is our calling. That is our mandate. Jesus assumes his followers will be in the world, but not of the world. Now, believers who aren't in the world aren't persecuted. They're not hated because they don't come in contact with those who do the persecuting. They don't come into contact with those who do the hating. And that shouldn't be because he's called us to go and bear fruit. On the other hand, there are professing Christians who are in the world, but they're of the world. And they're not persecuted either because there's nothing in them that the world sees or hears that threatens them. This is a very important verse for us. And so the one who is not of the world, but not in the world, avoids persecution by withdrawal. That's the worst thing we could do. The other who is in the world, but of the world, avoids persecution by over-assimilation. They look like the world. And neither approach is the will of Christ. Neither approach. Well, look with me in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, he said this earlier in chapter 13 when he was washing their feet and he was saying, look, um, to serve others is sacrificial. And he demonstrates that and he says, a servant is not greater than his master. And he repeats that here in a different context. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Like William Tyndale, who followed his master. Now, here's the question. Where's the master headed? He's headed towards the cross. And so Jesus is saying, a servant is not greater than his master. If you're going to follow a master who goes to the cross, you have to go to the cross with him. Obviously speaking figuratively here, but that's what he means And so he's saying, don't think 
that you can navigate and negotiate issues better than me. You will not. It's impossible for you to provide a more nuanced position on truth that will pacify the world and be faithful at the same time. Jesus is the master. Now, as the master, he was also the master theologian. He was the master communicator. He was the master preacher, the master teacher, the master lover. No one loved like Jesus. And if the master at all these things could not mollify and pacify the world, then the servant of the master is no exception. They persecuted him. They will persecute those who follow him. But notice, there's some good news here as well at the end of verse 20. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so, as we go into the world, to be forearmed or forewarned is to be forearmed. Okay? As we go into the world, we should expect there will be people who hate us. But there will be also people who hear us. Because they hear the word of Christ. But for those who do push back, Jesus is telling us what's behind the pushback, and it's not you. So quit taking it personally. What's behind it is godlessness. Look with me in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That's behind it. It's not because you're not a, a, a good enough communicator. It's not because you're not cool enough for them. At the end of the day, what's behind it is godlessness. They don't know the Father. Now, in the context, he's speaking about religious leaders, which would have really raised their dander. But they do not know the Father. And here he is saying, to know the Father is to know the Son. That's why we have to take the gospel to the nations. To know the Son is to know the Father, distinct, but equal in essence and power and glory. But that said, notice verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, that is, if I had not revealed myself to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. This is one of these very important texts that remind us you, you have to take every text in context. Let me explain this in just a moment. They would not have been guilty of sin had I not come. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, <laughs> this is the Reformation principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Elsewhere, John will write in 1 John 1, the very one who wrote this gospel, if anyone claims to be without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. 
okay? The reason Jesus came is, be, is because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no classification of humans out there who are not sinners, okay? So that's clearly not what he's saying. In fact, earlier in John 3, 36, he says, for those who do not trust in him, the wrath of God resides upon them, okay? But with that said, there are many, even today in the world, who've never heard the gospel. They've never heard Jesus' name. Are they innocent? No. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1 that God has revealed himself to them in creation and in the conscience. They will not be held accountable for not hearing the gospel because they've never heard the gospel. But they will be held accountable for suppressing the truth that has been revealed to them. And everyone has the truth revealed to them in some way. General revelation or special revelation or both. Here in this particular text, he is saying that had he not come, they would not be guilty of rejecting the son. Doesn't mean they wouldn't be guilty because again, God had revealed himself to them through creation. And in their case, the law. But now that he has come, there is this accountability for rejecting the son in addition to rejecting all other prior revelation. To whom much is given, much is required. Jesus said it this way, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the works that had been done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment. They would be judged, but there will be a toleration based on the fact that they had not had Christ revealed to them. Long story short, everyone's accountable, okay? That's why we take the gospel to them. But once a person has heard the gospel, they're accountable to that gospel. And that's what Jesus is saying here. They would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting him if he had not revealed himself to them. So you say, well, why, why did he reveal himself to them? Because they were still accountable, they still would have been judged because of what God had already revealed to them. But now they had a higher degree of accountability. And here's the reason, and this gets at the heart of why Christianity is the most hated religion in the world. It's because of what the implications are. Do you realize that our message is this? Jesus Christ took the judgment for sin that we deserve. All right? He took it. He satisfied God's wrath on our sin. What does that imply? That our sin deserves judgment. But it also implies this. If I don't trust in Christ, I'll be judged likewise. That's what the gospel implies. If I am not, as Psalm 2 says, kissing the son, embracing the son in repentance and faith, I will be judged as Christ was judged on the cross. And that's why the world hates Christ and the world hates Christianity. The cross exposes their sin and the coming judgment that awaits. H.A. Ironside uh, told this story of when the gospel was making inroads into inland Africa. And there was a missionary and his wife newly on the ground and a 
a chief's wife, an African chief's wife, wanted to meet them. And so she makes her way to the missionary, and they had a mirror hanging on a tree. She'd never seen a mirror before. She looked into the mirror, and she saw her painted-up face that reflected her pagan religion. And, and so she looked at the missionary, and she said, who is inside that tree? And he says, you're not, it's not the tree that you're seeing. You're seeing a glass that reflects you. Well, this woman just was not comfortable with that because she didn't like what she saw. And so she asked to purchase that mirror. And she took that mirror and she broke it. She crushed it because she didn't like what it reflected. She didn't like its implications. The world's hatred of believers is the woman breaking the mirror that reveals who she is. And this was prophesied. Jesus says this was prophesied, so it shouldn't catch anyone off guard. Notice in verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Oh, the irony, written in their law. He's talking about the religious leaders who love the law of God. And he's saying in their own law, it was prophesied that they would persecute the Christ. Oh, the irony. They hated me without a cause. And that is a quotation from uh, probably Psalm 35, 19 and Psalm 69, verse 4. But the, the real point you can make here is all the Old Testament that speaks of the righteous sufferer is pointing us to the truly righteous sufferer who would take our sin as, as, as our Savior and Lord. But notice the must. It is written in their law, it must be fulfilled. And that's so important because when God, when you go through suffering for the sake of Christ, now sometimes our suffering is because of our own, you know, foolishness. Because we're just being ornery or weird. All right? But when you go through suffering for Christ's sake, it is so easy to think that God has turned his back on you. And here that must tells us that there is a plan in place. And, and this should have been so deeply encouraging to the disciples. But that brings us to the most encouraging part of this passage. And that's starting in verse 26. So we've seen those who follow Jesus will be hated and persecuted. But those who follow Jesus, truly follow him, will be helped and provided for. Look with me in verse 26. But when the helper comes, man, if you, if you don't, think you need help, that line doesn't mean anything to you. But if you've been brought to the place of weakness and neediness because of your commitment to Christ, Jesus just made your day. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So Jesus is doing the sending and the Father's doing the sending. It's important. It's important. 
notice that word, who proceeds from the Father. So the Spirit proceeds from the Father. There's a, this is how you distinguish the Godhead, these eternal relations. The Father is the one who begets, who, who begets Christ, and the Spirit proceeds from the one who begets through the Son, who is begotten. Okay, so there's distinctions in the Godhead. But here's the important point that I think we need to consider here. Here he is saying the entire Godhead is coming to bear in your situation. The Father's sending, the Son is sending, and they are sending the paraclete, the helper. That is so deeply encouraging. And so Jesus is saying in our struggles with the world, and he's assuming you will if you're faithful. And that's a, that presents a real issue for American Christians where it's not that costly yet to be a Christian. But he's assuming that it will be. In your struggles with the world, the entire Godhead is coming to bear in your situation. That's what he's saying here. The Father's involved, the Spirit, Son's involved, and the Helper, the Spirit, is involved. But not only is he helping us in our struggles... He's helping us as we engage the world with the gospel. Notice he is described here as the spirit of truth. We've already seen him described that way in chapter 14. We'll see him described that way again in chapter 16, verse 13. He's the spirit of truth. One of the reasons Christians don't engage sinners, there's many reasons. Some of them is because of bad theology. We, we really question the lostness of people. We question the power of the gospel. But one of the reasons that's a little more innocent is that we, we perceive that we're, we're inadequate. Right, we are. I've never sensed adequacy in an, in an evangelistic engagement. I've never sensed adequacy when I preach. We are, we're inadequate. Who is sufficient for these things, Paul writes? But we underestimate the paraclete. He has sent you a helper. The helper is coming to bear when you engage the world, the hostile world with the gospel. If you really believe that, if we really believe that, I believe we would be more consistent with our evangelism. He is coming and he has come for us. We know this because of what happened at Pentecost. The spirit has come. And so the disciples, in spite of the suffering, are not left to approach this alone. But in an unfortunate chapter division, as I said, notice in verse 1 of chapter 16, he tells us why he's saying these things. Verse 27, he says, you will also bear witness. Again, he's assuming that you will bear witness. And again, the original audience was the disciples. But then the disciples would die. And the apostolic age would pass. But they will be the foundation of the church. And they will be inspired to write the word of God for us. And we become the witnesses after that. You will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. That's the disciples. And then he tells us in chapter 16, verse 1, why he's writing it. He gets to the point. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. You shouldn't be surprised when it, when it, imagine a football coach recruiting a kid to play football. They used to have two a days. I don't think they do two a days anymore. They used to have three a days. 
And imagine a coach not telling the kid, these two a days are going to be, they're going to be brutal. But on the other side, man, on the other side, Saturday afternoon with the band playing. All right? What does that do for a kid? It, it, it forewarns him. So that when he goes through the two a days, man, this is hard. Every day is like Groundhog Day. You know, it's hard, but I know what awaits me. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's forewarning them because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. They're going to put you out of the synagogues. Verse two, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Acts seven, the religious leaders put Stephen to death. They are serving God in their estimation. To be cast out of the synagogue was be to cast out of life. You know, today, if you go to certain places in the world, if you become a Christian, even if you're not killed, you'll be ostracized and marginalized by your family. You won't have an opportunity to have a job. You won't have an opportunity to, to care for your family. Your wife or, or husband may even turn on you. That's what he's saying here. We live in Disney World. This isn't Disney World for many people in the world. And he says, indeed, the hour is coming. Whoever kills you will think he's offering service. They will do these things not because there's anything wrong with you, because they've not known the Father, nor me. That's why. Godlessness. They are ungodly. But I've said these things to you again, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Again, Jesus is assuming that you will go and bear fruit. He's assuming that, okay? But there's a cost. There's a cost. Are we willing to pay the cost? Salvation is all of grace. But one of the evidences that the grace has taken is that we're now willing to pay the cost. The cost is not the ground of our salvation. Grace is. The finished work of Jesus is. But the cost is the fruit on the tree. It's the apple on the tree. Being willing to be in the world, but not of the world, for the sake of Christ, no matter the cost. Ironically, it was the cost of persecution that was behind the spread of the church. So, Acts 1.8, we have this prophecy, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. By the way, that word in Greek is martyrs. You shall be my martyrs, my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. By the time you get to Acts 8, they're still in Jerusalem. And so God permits by a sovereign plan a, a, a persecution. And that persecution caused the church to leave Jerusalem and take it to Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. Reflecting on the spread of that gospel in the first two centuries, Tertullian told the Roman officials in the second century, we are but of yesterday. He's talking about this Christian church is only 200 years old. We are but of yesterday, and yet we have filled... Every place among you, 
cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. How did that happen? The helper, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me close here. There's no commands in this text. In many ways, it's easier to preach um, the epistles where you have these imperatives, these commands that, uh, that you can just lay out on your people. There's no commands in this text, but this text is so important for us. It has so many purposes, and I'll, I'll be brief. First of all, this is primarily a text, an encouragement for those of you who are presently suffering for the cause of Christ. This is for you. To suffer for Christ is literally to share in your master's suffering. And God, through the Son, will help you by his Spirit. That is promised. Second, if you never experience any pushback, it should cause you concern. It should cause me concern. Lest I sound self-righteous, I don't experience enough pushback. Now, I've asked the Lord to do a work in me for that, to change that. So lest we, let me just put it that way, lest we never experience pushback for the gospel, it should cause us concern. Am I in the world, but too much of the world? That's the question I need to ask. Am I in the world, but I'm so much like the world that there's nothing that the world sees in me that threatens them? May we repent of being a spiritual chameleon who takes on the shape and the colors and the appearance of its environment. Or maybe I'm not of the world. If you, were to, if you were to watch my life, if you were to ask my spouse, my spouse could say, my children could say, my family could say, my close friends could say, that man, he's not of the world. But maybe I'm not in the world. Maybe I'm not in the world. If the one is like a chameleon, maybe the other is like a, a turtle. All right? He's just in his shell. With the former being in the world, but of the world, we need to repent of our compromise and ask, to show us, ask the Lord to show us the areas we compromise. For those of us who are not of the world, but not in the world, maybe we need to repent of our lovelessness, of our lack of zeal, for Christ's name and for his glory and for his gospel. With both, we need to recognize we need the helper. We need the paraclete. We need boldness and zeal for Christ. In Acts 4.29, in the very chapter where persecution really began, Here's what they prayed, and I'm going to close here. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue 
to speak your word with boldness. May that be the heart's cry for every Christ follower in this room. Lord, give us boldness. Give us holy zeal for your name. As Adam and the musicians come forward, maybe this would be a time for you to pray. You could pray here at the altar. You could pray in your seat. You could pray with the pastors here who are in the front. Ask the Lord to show you, maybe I'm too much of the world. Maybe that's my issue. Or maybe I'm not enough in the world. Maybe that's my issue. Maybe it's a little of both. And maybe this is the time, providentially, that you can confess that and ask the Lord to do a work in you. Or maybe you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not an enemy of God's people. You're just kind of indifferent. Today's the day you need to come to the Christ. He's going to be the one standing in the end. And all you have to do is confess your sins and trust in what he did for sinners at the cross. He took our judgment, was raised from the grave. If you will trust in him, your sins will be forgiven and you will be adopted into God's family. Won't you respond to that as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.